I was in uh, my mid-twenties when I began to understand what I was reading in the Bible. I've been reading it for some years, but it, it wasn't making sense. Uh, it, it took some time for that to happen, and it wasn't my diligence or my study or my intellect. I was, I was not a very good student in school early on. I learned to be so kind of over time. Uh, has, has anyone ever seen the movie uh, Cinderella Man? It's the story of a boxer uh, who was, had a he had a uh, average career until he realized what he was fighting for, and then he actually went on and won the championship. He fought Max Bear. Can't think of his name. Anyone know his name? No. No. Doesn't matter. Uh, I'll just keep him out of it in case his name has got royalties on it or something. But anyway, he he uh, was asked by a reporter, what, what, what's the change? Why are you so much better now? He says, well, I was injured and I got over some of those. But it, so the truth is, he said, I, I, I know what I'm fighting for now. And this was during the Great Depression. And this kids, they were living in a, a unheated basement somewhere and just a terrible conditions. And, it, and then the guy, the reporter said, well, what are you fighting for? He said, milk. Milk for his kids. And you're so much more. We're all so much more powerful when we're fighting for a cause outside of ourselves. The the selfish intent of trying to accomplish for something that we want uh, has its limits. But outside of ourselves, like with God, that love just grows and grows and grows. Um, so that's kind of where I was. I was trying to study the Bible for myself uh looking for answers and clues and so on. And in the process, God decided to open my mind up. So, I, so when he did that, when I started to attend church in 82 and then started learning so much so fast, I was really excited. And I thought that maybe like all of you, that I could convince others of what I was learning. And then after two years of alienating my family, my friends and my coworkers, in fact, everyone I knew, <laughs> I learned a very important lesson uh, Mr. Jeswold was in Ecclesiastes uh, this earlier, so let's go there, back there. Ecclesiastes 3, uh, this is a profound principle that I think we, if, we, if we don't learn it from Scripture, we, we have to learn it the hard way, which is what I did. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 says this, He, in reference to God, has made everything beautiful in its time, And he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God uh, does from beginning to end. Find out here, that phrase is is, uh, translated from the Hebrew word matzah, not matzo, matzah, M-A-T-S-A. And it's it's referring to self-directed efforts to attain, to acquire, or to get. I want something, you want something, so you go and get it. That doesn't happen in understanding the work that God does from beginning to end. No matter how smart we are, how wise we are, how experienced we are, how good a student we might be, that that is not how that's understood. It's a big lesson for us to learn. Look at the Psalm 139 here. Psalm uh, 139, we'll read through uh, verses 1 through 6. David here is describing what there is to know of God and what there is to know of his plan. And even though he and, and all of us have a, a portion of understanding with respect to it, largely because of his revelation, 
We can't see it all. We can't grasp it all. We're just too small. Um, Psalm 139, this is a psalm of David. Verse 1, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He knows us in and out. We are his creation. He formed us and knows exactly what we're capable of, what we can know, what we can do, what motivates us, and so on. Verse 4, For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I cannot attain it. God works in incredibly extraordinary ways that we simply, as physical human beings, though guided by his spirit, connecting with our spirit in man, we can't comprehend. It it lies beyond our ability to attain or to get or acquire. Look at Romans chapter 11 here now. Romans 11, we'll read verses 33 through 36. He's explaining here, this transition of God working through Israel, ancient Israel, and now moving into the Gentile uh, kingdoms of the world and selecting from everyone throughout the world, descendants of Israel, certainly, but the door is opened up through Christ. We understand that. Uh, he will still be working with Israel, but for now there's a, they're blinded. They, they can't necessarily see what's going on. Verses 33 through 36 now. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God in reference to that plan to take the truth to the Gentiles. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Remember that. All things in reference to Christ. Uh, and it will, we'll read this a bit later. Christ belongs to God. We belong to Christ. All things belong to us. Uh, I, I want to relate it through that statement to what we'll read next. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It is to God's glory to conceal a matter. We're told that in the scriptures. And it's to our glory as kings, future kings and priests, to search it out. But we're not going to do that with our own wisdom and our own understanding. Unless God opens the mind, the wisdom of men is useless in understanding his mysteries, what he has chosen to conceal. The church at Corinth was uh, very much infatuated by the wisdom of men, and they were uh, personalizing that in the character of Apollos and of Paul. I like him, I like him, I like the way they teach, I like what they reveal, and so on. And it was hindering their appreciation for the revelation of God, which is what these men were assigned to do, commissioned to do. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3 here. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll read verses 18 through chapter 4 and verse 1. So he's describing here the temple of God and how it is built and how all contribute to it. 
he mentions the the separation that formed in them reading in verses 4, 5, and 6 about how some were loyal to Apollos and some were loyal to Paul. Uh, he says in verse 6, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. He's trying to take the onus off of the, the messenger and put it on the one who sent the message. Um, not only, though, do we have a practice amongst humanity of killing the messenger. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but if you've ever been in the home office in the cafeteria area, there's a pink hat sitting on a, I don't know, it may not be there now, but there was for many years, on a shelf above where the coffee uh, place was. And uh, the hat said, don't shoot, messenger. <laughs> no one wants to deliver bad news. Well, uh, Paul was trying to, t- he suffered as a messenger, obviously. Paulus probably did as well. But the news was not his. The news was God's. And he wanted to solidify that connection there that, so that they would understand it and stop dividing over who they were going to follow. Because obviously, obviously we follow God through Christ. Verse 18. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. <clears throat> Let no one deceive himself. So how you are adding to this temple, <clears throat> whether in things like wood, stubble, hay, and so on, or whether things that will last through a fire, which he talks about in the, uh, prior to this, whether you're adding in stone or in beautiful gems or something like that, silver and gold. If you're deceiving yourself, if you think that you are adding something to what God reveals. That usually happens to those who are in positions at the lectern, teaching, or in some position of authority within the church. God is the one that makes the connection. If God was not working in your mind and heart right now, nothing I could tell you would, would, would seep in. You would not understand anything. Even, or if, if I, and I've seen, we've all seen this happen, great speakers in the church of God over the year, years that are not here anymore, who walked out the door thinking that they were a great teacher, thinking that they were very polished, or that they had the great wisdom or understanding or intellect that was figuring all this out for everybody that was their charge from God, and then they became the focus of their own message, not the deliverer of God's. Um, let's let's uh, read through this. Let no one, verse 18 again, let no one deceive himself. If anyone beca- uh, among you seems to be wise, this is, it says in this age, the wisdom they're referring to here is the wisdom of men, not the wisdom that God imparts. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What does that, what does that mean? It means to lower your opinion of your own knowledge, your own intellect and skill and experience, and truly see God for who he is, or at least try from such a distant perspective, a small vision, small understanding, be overwhelmed by whatever piece of God can fit into your mind. And then let him speak through you. Let him work in your mind to reveal to you his truths, his mysteries. It's a mindset going on here that enables us to grow in the knowledge and the truths he's revealing and one that does not. If we're so puffed up in our own opinion that we think we can choose our teachers or we think our wisdom gives us more understanding than what we're being taught from God, revealed to by God, then we're in a wrong spot. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness 
with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. You can't, you can't escape God. You, can't, you cannot get out of his reach. Um, there's too many examples in Scripture of individuals who realize that, including Jonah and others. God will accomplish what God will accomplish. And if it's through you, accept it. If it's not, accept that too. <laughs> his will be done. Uh, verse 20, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They're vain. They're vain. We're so small. We're so ineffectual. We can't really do the things we think we can do. This is a, a, an attitude of pride that this world run by the king of pride, Satan himself, foisters on us. And we've got to be aware of it. Verse 21 Therefore, let no one boast in men, Paulos, Paul, anyone else, for all things are yours. Remember what we just quoted? All things are ours, Paul is saying. What is he meaning here? Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they're all yours. God empowered them to teach you. Or the world or life or death. The plan for each of us that God has, as we heard in the sermonette, nothing untimely from his perspective. He knows what he's doing. Or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So all things work together in that respect to accomplish the will of God. Look at verse 1 now of, of, of chapter 4. Obviously, the, there were no chapter designations uh, when he wrote this. Let a man so consider us as servants of God, of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul here considered himself not only a servant of Christ, this wasn't by his wisdom or intellect or any of that, and he was well-trained as a, as a Pharisee, well-schooled, knew his, knew his Bible, which at the time was the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew it well and could teach from them to prove Christ to others. Um, he considered himself not only a servant of Christ, but a steward of the mysteries of God. The word steward here is translated from the Greek word oikonomos, oikonomos, O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. It means someone who is a guardian or a trustee, someone who is the holder of a commission, and in this case, in the service of God. And that commission was built around what he said here, taking care of, keeping, teaching, the stewardship, the mysteries of God as a steward. Paul knew the wisdom of men could not reveal the mysteries of God. Think of, there was probably no more learned of the apostles no, no more schooled. He probably knew his Bible better than any of them based on his training and his upbringing. But what was he led to do with that apart from Christ? He was a brilliant Pharisee, but his academic scriptural expertise only led him to persecute God's people, killing them and throwing them into prison. That's where his knowledge got him until he was revealed uh, Actually, the Christ was revealed to him on that road to Damascus in Acts 9. The word mystery in this statement, a steward of the mysteries of God, 
The word mystery is, is translated from the Greek word mysterion. Mysterion, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And, and that means a secret or a hidden meaning that would remain hidden unless it was revealed. So a secret or a hidden meaning that would remain such except through revelation. Only way. Barnes notes comments in Ephesians 1 and verse 9 on this word, mysterion, and says this, We commonly use the word to denote that which is above our comprehension or unintelligible, but this is never the meaning of the word in the New Testament. It means some doctrine or fact which has been concealed or which has not before been fully revealed or which has been set forth only by figures and symbols. When the doctrine is made known, it may be as clear and plain as any other. A mystery is something into which one must be initiated before it can be fully known. Let me repeat that. A mystery is something into which one must be initiated before it can be fully known. That was Barnes' notes. Paul uses this word many times in the New Testament, uh, 27 and all, I think it was. Um, but in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, and you can also write down 1 Corinthians 13, verses, verse 14, verse 2, I should say, 13.2 and 14.2 of 1 Corinthians. He's talking there about speaking in tongues, which we know means a foreign language, a language we do not understand. So Paul uses the word mysterion to describe something spoken in an unknown language. We heard it, but we don't understand the language. If someone was to teach me something in, in Korean, I would not get that. None of us would unless we understood Korean. Does anybody understand Korean? My, for some reason, my daughter Chelsea is studying Korean. I don't know why. She's just fascinated by symbolic language, I guess. In either case, you need to know something. You need to be initiated into Korean, be taught it, be trained in it before you could understand what was being said. In the same way, one must be instructed, uh, initiated into a mindset, into an understanding to understand what God is revealing in his mysteries. The Bible, we used to say, is written in code. Have you ever wondered this? You could read the same exact scripture and talk about it with someone else and they see it completely differently. I'm not talking about in the faith, but somebody may be outside of it. So you, you say, you go to, to the commandments and read the commandments and go, see, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. Well, that's, and someone says, that's how I interpret that. What does it say? This is what it says. Okay? And, and you could do that with lots of different scriptures before people. You could tell that someone's not understanding. Why? Something's not being revealed. I didn't mean to make a wrestling move there. Sorry. Half of you have no idea what that means. Okay. See me afterwards. I'll explain this. <laughs> Um, a mystery of God remains unknown until he reveals it. And, and those he chooses to reveal it are two, two sets. One is given a commission to teach it as Paul, as Apollos. And the other, he gives uh, the opportunity to learn it, opens the mind in both cases so that something can be transferred from him through 
someone he chooses to one he wants to learn and understand it. Now, this does not absolve us of diligently seeking the mysteries of God. To the contrary, once the mind is opened, it's like a it's like a, an empty stomach. It's desiring food. It wants something. It's like a dry sponge, and it soaks it all up. Uh, once able to know God's mysteries, his converted are determined to know those mysteries. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, you'll know this verse. You've heard it before. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's a conditional statement. It's someone who is searching for God with all their heart. And as we read Isaiah 66 and and verse 2, a humble heart, a contrite heart, one that trembles at his word and must tremble at his word in order to understand his mysteries uh, has to be in place long before that. Now, God's delineation between those he has given to know his mysteries and those who do not is significant in this age. It's crucial for us to understand that. I didn't understand that my first two years. And when I thought I was preaching the gospel, I was neither assigned to do it, and I was not addressing individuals God was opening their mind. That's why it failed. And it'll fail every time outside of that understanding. It's not just a privilege to know God's mysteries. It's a responsibility, one that we have to understand as his children in this age and as future kings and priests. He does not reveal them in vain. These are incredibly special things to understand, as we will see today, and that I hope to develop in the coming weeks. Today, I'll begin a series of sermons reviewing the 14 mysteries of God in the New Testament that he has chosen to reveal to his elect. That he shares these with us at all is something that we must fully respect and appreciate. They have implications for our calling, our election, and our faithfulness that founds our involvement in God's plan for all of humanity that we should be deeply absorbed in. With this opening sermon, I thought I should focus on the importance of God's revelation of these 14 mysteries, and then we will get into them in the coming weeks. I hope to do some combining, um, but depending on the depth that God reveals, uh, we may have to take a sermon for each one. So uh, strap up your boots. It's going to be a fun winter. Let's look here for at, the, at the privilege of God's revelation. This is, and again, something we need to understand. In all of our desire that this world would know what we know and, and be saved, which is what God says he wants, he wants everyone to come into an understanding of the truth and be saved. But there is a process in which that is done, a staged process that we must work within. We can't circumvent that. Look at John 12 here. John 12, we'll read verses 34 through 50. Uh, this is, a, this is a, after, uh, on that Friday prior to this, the Passover that he was killed, uh, that Christ came into the city on the, uh, the donkey and uh, he was praised as Hosanna, King of Israel, and so on. You see it in verses 13 and 14 of, and 15 as well in, in uh, John 12. But he starts explaining to them that he he actually, he was predicting his death. He came to die. 
not to be made king. And uh, they asked him a question in verse 34. Let's start there. John 12, 34. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, the phrase lifted up, they understood to be the crucifixion. That was a common phrase used to refer to that terrible practice. Verse 35, he responds. He says, Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer... The light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. That light can be a reference, certainly a reference to Christ, but also to the reference to the word of God. David makes mention of that in the Psalms. By the word of God, he sees it lights his path. The law of God, he talks about that quite often, especially um, Psalm 119. Um, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is an invitation broadly given by uh, the Son of God to follow the light that he has given, his teaching and his ability to transfer that to others. But he was going to explain here that this is not for everyone, even though many were hearing it. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. That's interesting phrasing. Because he was in plain sight of most of them, and he was still hidden from them. Uh, verse 37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they they did not believe in him. This, the belief in Christ is not dependent on the signs he does for us, the miracles he performs, healings, and so on. Verse 38, That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We covered these in a Bible study prior to the Passover. That's Isaiah 53 and verse 1, talking about the servant um, mindset, the servant's uh, duties and so on, servant songs. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his, God's glory, and spoke of him, the, the Son of God, in prophesying how he would die and suffer and so on. Isn't this fascinating that God was deliberately leaving the minds of some blind, or eyes blind, and their hearts hardened. In other words, their minds could not understand. And he was not enabling them to understand. Why is that? Lest they, lest they should see with their eyes. Because when they see, they're going to be held accountable for what they saw. This is serious. Or when they hear and understand, they're going to be held accountable for what was revealed to them by God through Christ. There was a response that demands uh, to be uh, happen. There's a response that God demands. He expects it. And it's a response we all understand in being revealed, these truths. Verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There are all kinds of elements and obstacles in this world 
that uh, try to encourage us to trade off. Yeah, God revealed this, but I don't need to understand that in all its implications. I've got work to do. You know, I I got to repair the gutters. I I I got this big project I'm working on at work. All right, I've got all these other issues and things that I got to take up take into here and now. The value comparison between what God's revealing and what they want to do or can do in this age is is completely unbalanced. There's not an appreciation for the understanding that's been given. Um, verse 44, then, then Jesus cried aloud and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. There's a direct connection in, in those two. We should never try to separate them. Who does what? Who's one's duties? Who said this? Who said that? They are one. One. In such a way that they want us to be one with them. Christ said that the night of the Passover that before he died. Uh, die. Verse 45, and he who sees me, sees me, see, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. I revealed to you this. I shared this priceless knowledge, these mysteries, the answers to them with you. What did you do with them? That'll be, that'll, that'll be determined by God at the judgment of each one of us. Verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. What I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The entirety of humanity can be organized into two camps. Those who see and hear, and those who are blind and deaf. We're not talking physically here. This is all metaphorical. It is Christ that brings the light for people to see and cease in their blindness spiritually. He also brings the word of God. He is the word of God and the light of God so that those can, they, they can hear and understand and no longer be deaf. Mark 4, 11 says this. I'll just read it for you. Mark 4, verse 11. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. One we will dig into a lot deeper in a separate message on this. But to those who are outside, in reference to those who have not been given to know the mystery, all things came or come in parables. He spoke in these stories. And the apostles went up afterwards and said, why do you always speak in these parables? Can you explain this to us? Yes, because it has been given to you to understand. It has not been given to them to understand. Some I've heard some ministers even in the church of God say he spoke in parable parables to make things more clear, to help people to truly understand what was going on. It's an illustration, it's a story, whatever. No, that's not what he said. He said he spoke in parables so they could not understand and only those those to whom it had been given could make the connections and understand. Um, but to those who are outside, meaning not coming into the presence of God, not being able to understand. All things come in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest, again, lest they should turn 
and their sins be forgiven them. God is not trying to save everybody in this world today. He can't. Why? Why is the plan this way? Why are there only a few now who truly understand, to whom he can reveal things to, whereas the rest don't see, don't understand? He can't share it with them. He won't share it with them, lest they turn. He's looking for those contrite hearts. He's looking for the the poor in spirit. He's looking for those who tremble at his word. And if that's not there, he can't work with them. He's working with us. He's revealing things to us. Look at Matthew 11 here. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 29. He is uh, making reference here to uh, John the Baptist and the preaching that some of the cities around him, Capernaum and others, were not listening. They weren't repenting. Um, And he began to rebuke them here in verse 20. This is uh, Matthew 11 and verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. See the expectation? Mighty work done, proof of God and his power and his, in his spirit, and no repentance. We, we talked about this on atonement, that most people, don't, and even uh, Christians uh, in Christian churches throughout the world, don't understand what repentance is, doesn't, don't see it as a need for salvation. That's not what the scriptures say. And when they ask for repentance, it's it's quite often asking for somebody else to repent. I think we saw that recently. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, uh, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is a a very eye-opening comparison that's being made here. I mean, these are the horrors of Sodom. Uh, If they had repented, if they had changed their ways, they would still be in place. But these other ones were rejecting the very king of kings. Verse 25. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Uh, Weaklings. People who should not be able to understand them. Why? Could it be that the wisdom of men blinds us in pride? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1 that knowledge puffs up and it is is love that builds up. Babes here, inexperienced, untaught. But God could see in them what? Contrite heart, poor in spirit, trembles at his word. God could work with them. You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Knowing God's mysteries is not a matter of human intellect. It's not a matter of how hard we study. It's not a matter of our experience or our accomplishments in this age. Jesus was delighting here. He was inspired that God had chosen the babes because those babes 
would glorify the Father and how they grew and changed. When they received those mysteries, when God opened their mind, they would be led to repentance and heaven would rejoice. He was rejoicing here and recognizing that when you take somebody, the weakest of the world, the ones who can't possibly make it, the ones the rest of the world, the wise ones and the intellectual ones, look down on because they, well, why would anyone ever choose them for this incredible position to be a king and a priest along Christ's side at his return? Well, this action would put them to shame. Let's continue reading. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Christ knew what to look for. He understood what God was looking for. And he would choose how to reveal the Father to an individual who would accept that revelation. And they wouldn't be depending on how well they were taught in school or any of the abilities or skills that they experienced in their life or developed. They wouldn't rest on that at all because they saw themselves as a babe, incapable of it, humble, teachable, trembling at the word of God. Verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not a difficult thing to understand when the mind is open. It's all the obstacles we put in place our own perspective of wisdom, understanding, skills, and abilities that deny us the ability to see. And God just chooses not to, reveal, not to, not to work through those. Because until that drops, until our own free moral agency accepts this path to move on to holy, righteous character, he can't work with us. That's why we're a small group now. Doesn't, doesn't deny anyone the same opportunity, maybe to the first resurrection, the better resurrection, but not into the family of God. Eventually, everyone will have their opportunity. We know that. Knowing God's mysteries, again, is not a matter of intellect. We, brethren, are the least likely uh, that anyone in this age would expect to be chosen for this privilege, right? I know my family is amazed at it. (laughs) Part of the reason I had a hard time reaching them was because I, I, uh, uh, I was not a very good son or brother, (laughs) growing up. I mean, I had all the issues everybody else had, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever. And they were looking at me and go, Brian, do you, have you forgotten who you are? <laughs> no, I haven't forgotten. I buried that guy. I, I, he's dead. I'm a totally new person. Yeah, right. Now, something in the last 38 years have shown, has shown fruits to them, but they're not making the connection. You know, when, when many of my family is getting into trouble in a lot of different ways, broken families, all these kinds of things, um, they're not seeing that, you know, God has preserved me and my family from all of that stuff. Uh, they will in time. When God opens their mind, they'll see it. Let's go to Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians 2 here. First Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like to begin reading in uh, uh, verse 26. We'll read through verse 31. We usually turn here uh, 
to discuss uh, how God's Spirit works with our spirit in man to help us to understand and grow in character and so on. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 26. I'm sorry, that's not right. I think it's just... Oh, I've got I've gotten these I've gotten these my scriptures uh, confused here. Um, yes, it's First Corinthians one, verses twenty six through thirty one. I'm sorry, verse twenty six. For you see your calling, brethren. The, so the opening, the invitation that God sent us, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, also according to the flesh are called. They're not. Invited, They may see the invitation, but they would ignore it. Uh, but God has chosen, this is a reference now to the elect, not just those who are called, but those who are chosen, uh, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. This is probably one of the most humbling concepts we can recognize in the scriptures. And if we keep this in mind, we we won't get puffed up in what we think we can do in the flesh. No matter how smart we are, no no matter how many degrees we've got or how much money we've made, none of that matters. We recognize that he chose us because we couldn't do these things. We're not wise. We are not noble. And we are not strong. But he is. And because we are babes in that essence, we recognize that he will be strong in us. He will be wise in us. He will lead us to nobility. Verse 30. But of him you are in Christ, uh, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's what we are called to do now. Again, we're the least likely to be chosen for this. But when Christ in us, it's a Colossians 1.27, when Christ in us makes us wise, strong, and noble, everyone else that knew us previously will marvel and praise God, and they will be led even more so to know and to trust in him. Again, this is not based upon what we say only, but who we become, the very sons of God. Look at First Peter 1 here. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read verses 3 through 12. Peter went through this transition. We know what he was like beforehand. He kind of struggled with pride. He may have been the oldest or the most respected within the group. He pushed himself out a lot a lot as the leader, and there were some indications that God made revelations to him that he understood who Christ was. And because he was so outspoken and strong, others looked up to him. But Peter went through that transition when he denied Christ and he saw what he was incapable of and he recognized how base he was, how low he was, how he could not grasp these things no matter how much Christ revealed to him. His mind wasn't even ready to receive it yet. He had to be humbled. And then after Acts 2, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter is a completely different person. And he writes here from that perspective. uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So new life is formed in us, begotten within us by God the Father. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, believing his word enough to do what it says, leading us on that path to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, glory, and the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, in reference to Jesus Christ, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We need to get this into our head. We did not see anything. We are not witnesses. We didn't see anything. All right, that's terminology that's been absconded and misused. The witnesses were the ones who wrote these words. We believe because we believe them. And that belief comes not from things we see. That's the basis of faith. we got to look beyond that. I'll, I'll cover that in a moment. But in this section, recognize Peter is the one recognizing he is the witness. We are not. You can, you certainly need to be, as Peter says later in this chap or this book, that we need to be ready to give a defense to people who ask us for the reason of the hope. But that doesn't make us a witness. We didn't see anything. Where do we point people who want to know what we believe? Do we tell them a story of what we saw, or do we point them to the Word of God? Here's what it says. Well, why do you believe that? Let me tell you why I believe that. We point them to God through his word. That, that, that is our service. That's how we serve God in this age. We don't take that upon ourselves. That's a sign. Remember I said earlier, God assigns those. A commission to teach. Paul referred to himself in Apollos. But could have been generally referring to all the apostles. When that position is assigned, it's expected to be fulfilled. It's not expected to be absconded by somebody who just wants to do it, who thinks it's a good idea, like I did my first two years. I caused more harm than good. Now, was I innocent or just naive? I think I was proud of what I knew, and I I, I explained it all wrong. Maybe God had designs, but maybe... And to, to work with them, but maybe I just messed all that up. I don't want you to have to live with something like that. Verse 9. Receiving the outcome, or the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is the outcome. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, the favor that God would, would, would give to us in revealing these mysteries to us. All right, they didn't understand it all. They penned it down as God inspired them to do so, word for word. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. The indication there is they did not know. Full, they may have known something, some of it, but not all. 
not to the extent that we have been revealed. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Do we recognize, brethren, the full privilege that we have in what God has revealed to us? Or do we just take those the revelation of the answers to those mysteries for granted? Maybe I, prior to the study, I did not know all of them. And I hope to share them with you to help us all appreciate them. Peter here is trying to impress upon us the value of the things which have been revealed to us. Though the prophets and even the angels did not understand fully, brethren, we do. In these 14 keys, these 14 mysteries that God has revealed, we understand them. Even those who penned them down didn't understand them fully when they did. God's servants desired greatly to investigate into what God was doing, but it was not given to them then. It is given to those privileged to be called his friends. Abraham was called the friend of God. You remember when uh, the Logos was going with a couple of angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And... uh, the one who became Christ, the Logos, is wrestling with himself. Should I reveal this to Abraham? He's my friend. Should I reveal this to my friend? And he chose that he would do this. Christ said this in John 15, verse 15, talking to those who would become his his uh, apostles in that upper room and, and at that Passover service. John 15, 15, he said, No longer do I call you servants, For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things. There's that phrase again. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Call them then his friends. In John 20 and verse 29, Christ said this. Let's let's turn there. I I was just going to make reference to that, but let's turn there. It's a very important scripture. John 20 and verse 29. This is after Thomas had doubted whether or not the apostles actually saw him. And I think that was potentially even planned. Maybe he was just given other duties or so on when he did show up and he couldn't see to teach us this lesson. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that? That's us. That's us. We are blessed that we did not see, but we still believe. That's faith, brethren. Hebrews 11, verse 1, that's faith. We were not witnesses to these things, but God had them preserved for us so he could reveal them and more to us. These are incredible mysteries. Angels and prophets have desired to understand that we now understand by his revelation through his apostles and other writers of the scriptures, and his spirit within us. Let's look at now the responsibility of God's revelation. This isn't just a privilege for us. We, 
we have a responsibility to receive these and respond to them, these mysteries of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Actually, we looked at 1 Corinthians 1. I should change that in my notes. 1 Corinthians 2 now. Let's read verses 1 through 16. Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. In fact, there's some indication in the Scripture Paul was a boring speaker, better writer, certainly gifted in understanding and wisdom and teaching and so on, but put people to sleep, even killed people. <laughs> I mean, I go long, but I haven't killed anybody yet that I know of. Uh, but he, no problem, God uh, raised, resurrected him. Verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul has all this incredible knowledge of the scriptures. But he saw how his own understanding and wisdom and how his pride in those scriptures led him to persecute and kill God's people. So he's focusing all on Jesus Christ, all on Jesus Christ. This is not just a Jewish thing anymore. Okay, this is for the entirety of the world, a plan for all of humanity and it, it, the hinge pin, the, the focus point here was Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. I'm uh, obviously very moved when I see people at the lectern that are overwhelmed that God is using them um, to teach you. Um, it hits me. I mean, I... I know sometimes you guys look at me and go, what in the world is he tearing up for? Um, that's usually what it is. It's not, it has nothing to do with a sad story I'm telling or anything, but in an acknowledgement that God, why would God use me? I'm one of, I'm one of you. I'm the, one of the base things. I'm, I got no degrees in theology. I have no, uh, specific training except for what you are all receiving. And I'm trying to share that with all of you, but, as God enables me to do so. Um, but that's the one of the major things that chokes me up. Uh, the character that we are supposed to have or be shooting for to be able to teach and knowing I, I fall so far short of that. In, other, in either case, let's keep reading here. And my speech, verse 4, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Um, those are not tangible, physical things. There has to be an association in a mind led by God's spirit to, to associate something the spirit is doing, revealing, um, that they assigned that to it. Verse, and not to the man. Remember, he, uh, later on in this chapter, he talks about that. Verse five, that your faith should be in the wisdom of, that your faith should not be actually in the wisdom of men, but in the power or the spirit of God. That's a, that's a, a big distinction that we have to make. The flesh will always be at war with the spirit. He talks about that through this chapter, but faith is not seen in the wisdom of men. It is lived in the spirit of God. Let that be the underlying example that we set. And anyone who approaches this lectern or in any position to teach God's people, let that be the core of what we're understanding and doing. Faith is lived in the Spirit of God. 
it is not seen by the wisdom of men. That's that's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is not seen. Verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. This is spiritually. Yet not in the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. There's that word again. Mysterion. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. And we'll talk about the wisdom of God and how it is mysterious to this world. The hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see that connection to a much bigger plan? That has to have these stages. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. There's that reference again. Yet, yes, the deep things of God. The deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? He's using that here simply as an example. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God, which those who are led by it are influenced by it to understand. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Those great mysteries that we understand And the vast percentage of this world does not. Verse 13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is why our intellect is not going to impress anybody. Our knowledge of the Bible is not going to impress anybody. Unless God wants them to be impressed. And unless our motivation is to point to God through his word. Not to seem smart, not to win an argument, not to, not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God. He can work with that. He can't work without it. Uh, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Not physical to physical, and not spiritual to physical, or the reverse. Spiritual to spiritual, principles, laws that are being ingrained into who we are. Verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. See this battle that's going on? The more those carnal or physical things get in the way, it blinds us from understanding what God is revealing to us spiritually. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things. Here's that word again, or that phrase. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. (laughs) Talk about privilege. Uh engendering responsibility. That's amazing. Again, the flesh will always be at war with the spirit. But we have to understand that our wisdom is not based upon what we see with our eyes. It is lived by how we apply 
the word of God in spirit. Let's look at Second uh, Peter again. Second Peter. Actually, we're in First Peter before. Let's go to Second Peter, and I'll start to close this out. But uh, the, Peter, again, the experience that he went through is something that uh, is a lesson for us. And I knew he understood this by the way he writes in his epistles, First and Second Peter. Let's read verses uh, one through four first in Second Peter, and then we'll read verses twelve through twenty-one. And then I'd like to close in reading all of chapter 3 here. Okay, uh, uh, 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power, his Holy Spirit, has given to us all things that pertain to life. There's that phrase again, all things. Uh, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Do you hold that highly with that much value what God has revealed to you. And I'm not just talking here to baptize older members of the church, but the young ones who are not yet baptized. You've been reared in it since the day you were born. But you, do you take it for granted? Do you not make the comparison between what the church of God, the elect, know, and the rest of the world does not or do you just think it's all blended together and this is only our version of Christianity? That's a lie. Anyone who believes that is being deceived. This is not our version of anything. And God does not have versions where some keep a Sunday and some keep a Sabbath or some keep Christmas and some keep his holy days. They don't understand. I'm not, I'm not criticizing or condemning them. But I am calling into question and asking for your responsibility to treasure what you've been taught. See it in contrast with the confusion of this world. Recognize that. Study it. Appreciate it. All right, I'll read four again. By which we have been given, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, the very character of God, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have to overcome, as we heard in the sermonette, and what we are overcoming is the lust of this corrupt world so that we can enter into his kingdom. Let's begin reading now in verse 12. And we'll read through verse 21. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things that you may that you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, his physical body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. He's, he's looking... Forward, not in, not in, with a joyful anticipation of the death, but of his next waking thought being Christ's return. 
knowing that I shortly must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. That was at the end of the book of John when he was telling him how he would die. Verse 15, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's referring here to the transfiguration in uh, uh, John, uh, no, Matthew 17. Verse 17, for he received, uh, he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, all of the scriptures inspired by God through his prophets, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And this is a dark place, and it's getting darker. We have to draw the contrast between what was revealed in the light and and what we are living in now in a darkening world. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises, where? In your hearts, in all of your reasoning, in all of your will, in all your conscience, and in all your passions. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Everything runs through the Word of God. The Bible interprets itself. These are rules of study that we have practiced for years. For no prophecy... uh, for prophecy never came by the will of man. This isn't just their thinking, their experience. This is not just something they wanted to write down. God revealed it through them, breathed it through them. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, we understand it the same way. If it was revealed by his Spirit to the prophets, it must be revealed to us through the prophets. But because of the writings of the apostles, we could take it further. We know more than even the prophets who wrote that down. Chapter 2 here is a is a, a description of the obstacles, false prophets, false teachers, um, exploiting you with deceptive words, um, getting through temptations, natural brute beasts coming to feast with us, and so on. We have to be discerning of these things, not in a condemning way, but in a recognition that one is darkness and one is light. But I want to finish here in in chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 18. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. None of that matters. Show me something. I want to see something. I'm not going to believe what I can't see. Where is all the stuff that was supposed to happen? That's just a big mystery. (laughs) Is it? Yeah. But is it to us? Verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. It's a reference to Genesis 1, not the flood uh, in Genesis 6. Uh, Verse 6. By which the world... 
that then ex- existed perish being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This is, this is all told in the context of God's revealed mysteries. What's he doing here? I heard it phrased once in a sermon title, What on earth is God doing? <laughs> I, I just love that title. But verse eight, but I, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So his plan has to be staged in such a way. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We know this. This is a revealed mystery to us that most do not understand, can't understand. They, they, don't, they don't have the code to translate this. The Holy Spirit, conversion within us, repentance, faith, baptism, the gift of his Holy Spirit, and so on. That's what defines our conversion. That is the key to understanding this. Verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Remember, faith is lived in the practice of righteousness. That's how it's built. Are you just keeping laws? Are you just being told, doing what you're only told to do? Or are you seeking more? That's how faith grows. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's a mystery that few others know or understand or are living to expect or living to prepare for. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, these revealed mysteries, the plan of God, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you. That word has there is written in the Greek aorist sense. So by this time, Paul had either uh, ceased writing or was dead. Verse 16 as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Brethren, this defines most of professing Christianity. They are untaught, unstable. They are twisted to their own destruction as they do the rest of scriptures. They must, they have to, if they're not living them the most obvious of them that I've already mentioned. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, since we are aware of these mysteries and this plan, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. The ultimate of this is to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And that growth is based upon our understanding of God's revealed mysteries. Brethren, 
it'll take us some time to go through these 14 mysteries of God uh, in the New Testament that he's revealed to us in this end time. But it is essential for his called, his elected, and his faithful to know them well. Each one of them founds our loyal involvement in the plan of God for all of humanity. We will uh, take this, all 14 of them, in the next probably 14 weeks or the 14 times that I have a chance uh, to speak on them. If I can combine them, I will. But again, if it, if it gets detailed, I think you would appreciate that depth. And I will take this slowly. Um, but hopefully we can get this done by the spring holy days. The, 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 what we will cover in the next two to three weeks, and it will depend on how uh, quickly I can get through this, um, is God. God is referred to as a mystery in the scriptures in the New Testament. The God that we know, God that we understand, that separates us in, in who, in our understanding of God versus everybody else's understanding of God. Also, God's will, what he intends to do is a mystery to most. We understand that. And God's wisdom, how he goes about doing it, which flies in the face of all of human wisdom. So we'll cover those in the next two or three uh, sermons. I look forward to sharing all that with you.